For the past few weeks, my guests and I have been chatting about new YA and middle grade books, but December is here and it's time to get back to our bread and butter, the books we read back in our own high school and middle school days. This week's focus is The Cat Ate My Gym Suit by Paula Danziger. Don't be misled by the book's playful title. The 1974 novel is less about felines and more about the changes that were happening in our country in the 70s. Paula Danzinger explores themes of feminism and patriotism through the eyes of Marcy, a ninth grader who struggles with insecurities about her body and with tensions at home. Her parents have a toxic, abusive relationship that puts her mother in a constant, defensive, peacekeeping state. When a new English teacher named Ms. Finney gives Marcy the kind of outlet she needs by offering her support and teaching her how to communicate about her emotions, it seems like things might get better. But then Ms. Finney is removed from the classroom because of her unorthodox approach and her decision to stay silent during the school's daily Pledge of Allegiance. Marcy and her classmates come together to seek justice for their teacher, and it really shakes things up in their community. On episode 222, my guests and I discuss the many ways in which this story feels timeless and do a little head-scratching about some negative reviews it got when it was first published. We go into detail about the bigger themes of The Cat Ate My Gym Suit and talk about the evolution of narratives around body size and taking up space. Please listen with care if you are triggered by conversations about abusive relationships, prescription drug use, and body shaming. I know for a fact that today's guest has many, many guests in our community, so she needs little to no introduction, but she's going to get one anyway. Jasmine Guillory is a New York Times bestselling author. Her novels include The Wedding Date, the Reese's Book Club selection, The Proposal, and By the Book. Her work has appeared in The Wall Street Journal, Cosmopolitan, Bon Appetit, and Time, and she is a frequent book contributor on The Today Show. She lives in Oakland, California. Follow her on Instagram at jasminepicks and on Twitter at thebestjasmine. You can go ahead and pinch me, friends, because Jasmine Guillory is on the show today. If you love listening to this conversation with Jasmine, maybe this should be the week that you share about SSR on social media. Take a screenshot of the episode wherever you're listening to it and post it to your Instagram story. Tag me at SSRPod so I can see it and share. You can also share about the podcast on Twitter, where you can tag me at SSRPod, and on Facebook, where we're searchable as the SSR Podcast or the SSR Book Club, and wherever else you like spending your time on social media. I would also invite you to leave a five-star rating or review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. We can never have too many of those. They help those platforms connect new listeners to SSR so we can continue growing our family. There's also the Patreon family, which is a cozy subgroup within the larger listener community that brings me a lot of personal joy. Patrons contribute a few dollars to the show every month, but they get so much in return. They're invited to join our Discord group, be part of the SWR book club, listen to and participate in bonus episodes, tune in to exclusive Q&As with our guests, read a monthly newsletter, watch reading recap videos, and more. It's a lot of fun and a great way to support the pod too. If you know people who enjoy SSR, you might also consider gifting them a Patreon membership for the holidays. Get all the details at www.patreon.com slash SSRpodcast or by going to www.ssrpodcast.com and clicking support at the top of the page. Speaking of gifts, a credit bundle from my friends at Libro FM might be the perfect way to treat the book lovers in your life. 
Credit bundles come in packs of two, three, six, nine, 12, or 24 audiobook credits and give your loved ones the chance to choose the titles they would most like to read. Plus, they'll know that indie booksellers got a little love in the shopping process. Learn more at the link in my Instagram bio at SSRPod. Happy gifting! Time to get into my conversation with Jasmine Guillory. Let's go to the show. Welcome to the SSR Podcast. You may recognize SSR as an elementary school era abbreviation for silent sustained reading, but if you don't, that's okay. What it stands for here is Shit She Read. Each week, we'll crack the binding on an old school read written for kids or teens and talk about it from a kind of grown-up perspective. We'll obsess over heartthrobs, relive the frustrations of middle school, and say an occasional WTF to a beloved author. If we haven't met yet, I'm your host, Ali Hofkosik, freelance writer, lifelong bookworm, and lover of anything covered in rainbow sprinkles. So find your favorite reading spot and a glass of wine. We're about to revisit some literary throwbacks right here on the SSR Podcast. Hi, Jasmine. Welcome to SSR. Hello. Thank you for having me. I'm so happy you're here. I geeked out about this with you when we jumped on a couple of minutes ago, but I'm going to do it again for the benefit of the listener because this is a little bit of a moment for me. Jasmine Guillory was one of the first people that I put on my like guest wish list back in 2018, and it's so exciting that you're here today. So thank you for taking the time. I know you have a very busy schedule. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to talk about this book. Yes. Today we are talking about The Cat Ate My Gym Suit by... Paula Danziger, and I, I will never be able to pronounce her last name smoothly. We've done a couple of her books on the show in the past, and it just does not roll off my tongue. But Paula Danziger, this book was published in 1974. I would love to get started by hearing a little bit about any background that you might have with the book, Jasmine, or why you chose to read it from the selections that I sent your way. Yeah, so I read a bunch of Paula Danzinger books when I was a teenager. Uh, There's a bunch of these that are like in order. I kind of read them all out of order. So this book actually was one that like I had forgotten a lot of the stuff about because I think I came to it like with the the last book and then sort of went back and read this one. But like I didn't remember anything about it. So it was good to like revisit and to like revisit her writing because I because I I remembered loving her books but not a ton about them and her writing is so engaging I'd forgotten that yeah it brings you right in and I love that she gets you right into the action like she's just you're right in there with the character and I think she writes in a voice that's so true to the way so many of us felt when we were teenagers and that definitely came through in the cat ate my gym suit For context, listeners, I don't know if you had this same author's note in the copy that you read, Jasmine, but I thought that the story behind The Cat Ate My Gym Suit, which was actually Paula Danziger's first published novel, was pretty interesting. So it was published in 1974, um, and she tells the story in the author's note about how in 1970, she was a teacher, and this book orbits around a teacher named Ms. Finney, and so Ms. Finney She's inspired by Paula Danziger. So 1970, she was teaching and she hadn't written any fiction in years since her college creative writing class. And she unfortunately was involved in a really terrible car accident in 1970. And so she had to teach herself how to read and how to write again, which just sounds really horrible. And I can't even imagine what that would feel like, especially as somebody with such a passion for words. But she was not able to go back to the classroom during that time. And so she took the opportunity to try her hand at fiction again. 
And I wanted to share a quote from that author's note, although the whole thing is fabulous. She writes, I wrote what I knew best about a heavy girl with a tyrannical father, a nervous mother, an annoying younger brother, and a poor self-image, and about a bright and creative teacher, one who was politically active. I just thought that context was so interesting, and it's cool to be reading her first published work as well. Yeah, absolutely. I had forgotten until reading that that this... I don't think I'd ever known, you know, right? Like that this was her first book. So it was really interesting to go back and revisit that. And I, I don't think I had known that context before I read it this time. Yeah. So we are recording this on an interesting day, actually, because uh, it's the day after Election Day 2022. And this book happens to be political in nature, which I certainly did not remember. I know that I read this book when I was a kid but it totally like has blended into all the other books that I read when I was a kid. And so I had no idea what it would be about when I picked it up. And of course, the title is very misleading. The cat ate my gym suit. It really like draws kids in who have no idea what they're getting into. And so as I was reading and preparing and knowing that we were going to talk after election day, I was like, oh, this is juicy and so timely. But something that I found really interesting that I thought could be a cool jumping off point for our conversation is that when I was reading old reviews of this book, particularly a review that was published in Kirkus in 1974, it actually is not that flattering. And if it's okay with you, Jasmine, I wanted to go ahead and read a chunk of it because when I read it today, I was like, I'm sorry, like what? Like Kirkus, I feel like we read two different books. <laughs> yeah, please read it. Okay, because this is not my experience with this book at all. So Kirkus Reviews, who I reference quite a bit on this podcast, said, at its worst, this is a trite and trendy saga of how a junior high English class gets it together to fight for the job of Ms. Finney, a paragon of an innovative teacher who puts across dangling participles and sensitivity sessions with equal ease. The only relief from the cliche is the relationship between lumpish, insecure Marcy and her father, a frustrated, angry, nonverbal man who can show his love only through providing food and shopping trips. The parent who can't communicate his love and concern is no doubt a more common problem than alcoholism or divorce, but he's seldom dealt with this forthrightly in contemporary stories, where parents, whatever their faults, are usually articulate. Marcy's tense family situation is really the subject here. The instant therapeutic effect of Ms. Finney, a sort of denim deus ex machina, is a cop-out. Thoughts on that review? Okay, one of the really interesting things about that review is that it calls it it starts with like the, the story about Miss Finney is trendy, which the amazing thing is, you know, reading this, what, like almost 50 years after the book came out, I thought how like timeless so much of the story was. Yeah. Because like, you know, it's all about like a teacher, they're going before the school board and like fighting for the teacher because she doesn't say the Pledge of Allegiance, which... Yes, that detail it is very 70s, but like all the rest of it could absolutely be in a book today. And so that's what's so interesting is like these fights have been going on in public schools with teachers, with the school boards for so long. And these fights are still happening. And I really like didn't expect the story, so much of the story to feel so timeless. It felt so timeless. And even the use of the word cliche, I thought was fascinating because... Again, I wasn't around in 1974, but I feel like based on my understanding of the media that was available in 1974, I guess I would not have assumed that this would be viewed as cliche because I would imagine that it was pretty fresh and in a lot of ways unheard of. I mean, I guess it is the 70s and so there's a lot of dialogue about patriotism and 
what it means to love America and what it means to love others. But cliche just feels like a little strong. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I guess maybe in branding, you know, but but the interesting thing is, no, because I thought like Miss Finney was not a cliche teacher, right? It would have been one thing if she was like, she, she didn't feel very like 70s and, you know, it didn't describe her her weird, it, it did talk about how she wore untraditional clothes, but it didn't talk about what those were, right? Yeah. Or her like flower child, whatever. No, it just sort of talked about how she taught them English in an interesting way and and what she made the kids feel. And I thought that was so interesting in the description of the teacher and how she inspired these kids. It did not seem cliche to me at all. Yeah, I feel like maybe this Kirkus reviewer was having a bad day. I also feel as though they, there's almost this sense of like, I don't want to say that the reviewer is celebrating this horrible father character because he is just a bad guy. But it feels like we're butting up against that um, in being like, oh, it's the father is really at the center of this book. And I guess there's an argument to be made that like, you know, this reviewer is just seeing that the family struggle is perhaps what's more universal and a thing that more kids would understand. But it, even the fact that words like non, you know, I feel like we're being a little generous with him. I was just about to say it was very generous to the father, calling yeah. him nonverbal. He was quite verbal. <laughs> love the family in this way. Like, well, he was abusive. Yeah, <laughs> like, I'd say he was verbal. <laughs> he, was, he was pretty verbal. He, he verbalized things very well. <laughs> yeah. But it seemed very kind. That Like that description of the father seemed very kind. Yeah, so as I was reading that review this morning, I'm sure you can imagine, I was like, huh? Because I'm reading this in 2022 and it feels really fresh and important. And I'm like, really, in 1974, like this didn't excite kid lit reviewers? Like, I, I feel like it would have been so cool. Yeah, right? I mean, I feel like in my mind, I was kind of thinking about it, you know, comparing it in my mind to young adult books today, right? And it is so many of the issues in it are do feel timeless. I think it's written in a very different way than young adult books today, right? Because because I feel like often there's this struggle to like be an issue book or like a light book. Yeah. And there's so much of both in there of like Marcy dealing with all of these things, but like still like having, you know, going out on her first date and like that kind of stuff. And so, but like the stuff with the father got real, really fast. Like yeah. the first chapter of the book, he's being terrible. And I thought it was just so interesting to have like so much of the balance or the like casual reference to the mom taking tranquilizers. Yeah. I mean, when I was reviewing my notes this morning and I saw I had made that note in the margins, I was like, I, that, that was lost to me because I read it like three days ago and there are so many other things that came up that I was like, oh, right. We're concerned about the mom's prescription drug use. <laughs> There's a lot packed into a very short little package in this book. Yes. Let's talk a little bit about Marcy as a protagonist. So when we meet her, she's our first person narrator. So we're really getting into her head and seeing the world through her perspective. She's 13. She's just started ninth grade, which is, of course, like a big time for any high school, middle school student. That's a huge transition. I wanted to read a couple of things that Marcy says early on. Well, really, there's just one line that I wanted to share because it kind of sets her up for us. She says, my life is not easy. I know I'm not poor. Nobody beats me. I have clothes to wear, my own room, a stereo, a TV, and a push-button phone. Sometimes I feel guilty being so miserable, but middle-class kids have problems too. And it's interesting because as I was reading that, I found myself like 
without meaning to or without wanting to, like putting a little bit of a tone in it, like a little bit of a brattiness. And I, I wish I hadn't done that because I just think that there's so much in those two sentences that's like really relatable to kids. And there's like this perspective that I don't think any of us have when we're growing up. Like everybody thinks that their problems are the most serious when they're 13. But I don't, I think Marcy is probably a very polarizing character. I actually was surprised that if, if we were going to read a nasty review, I'm surprised that people didn't go a little bit harder on Marcy because I can see how, yeah. how she would have been divisive, especially in the 70s. Yeah. And the interesting thing about that is I did think about, because I feel like over these past two and a half years, right, I feel like there's so many points of the pandemic where people were like, I know I have it easy. I can work at home. I can do this and I can do that, but I'm still miserable. And so it, it felt like that, like, yes, I don't have it the worst of everybody, but I have problems too. And so I did really like sympathize with Marcy then, but also, yeah, she means she does seem a little bratty, but in that way that all... 13 year olds do like and so I I just yeah she she was I mean 13 is a hard time of course she's having a hard time and feeling bratty and all of those things right feeling bratty I also thought it was interesting that the author chose to explicitly use the phrase middle class because that's at least like a phrase that I can't recall seeing in recent YA and I as I'm reflecting on all the books that we've covered for the podcast over the last four and a half years now I don't know that a character has ever like come right out and called themselves middle class. And I, again, I wonder if that was a little bit of a sign of the time. I would imagine that in the seventies, like there was more dialogue about being a part of the middle class. Whereas now we don't talk about that with kids quite as much, but I, I like that that was included because I think so often kids are used to reading books about kids on the extremes, like kids that grow up with so much wealth and privilege and then kids that are coming from really, really humble beginnings. And so it's kind of cool that Paula Danziger not only like creates this middle-class family, but has the character come right out and define herself that way. Yeah, absolutely. And that Marcy is actively thinking about that, right? And I mean, money does come up a bunch in this book, but not in a, not in a like, Yes, it's clear that they're not poor, they're not struggling, but money is an issue. And so that is something that that I thought was interesting, the, the kind of reference to middle class in a way that I think is true. It's not a thing you usually see in YA books today, or I mean, I don't know if it was usual then or not, but it does seem like different. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's something I want to look into more, um, especially if I get the chance, which I'm sure I will, to read more books from around this time period for the podcast. One part of Marcy's character that we unfortunately have to dig into because it plays such a role in this book and you're nodding your head so I have a feeling you know what I'm going to say is the weight issue and um, the matter of the size of Marcy's body. And I always hesitate to talk about this on the podcast because it is such a hard thing to discuss But we really can't separate that from this book because it is just like a constant refrain in Marcy's head. She is insecure about a lot of things, but I think the thing we hear about the most from her is the size of her body. And what's fascinating, I think, about the discussion that we might be able to have today about this is is maybe the way that the author has chosen to portray that conversation in this book in 1974 versus how an author might choose, if at all, to portray that conversation in 2022, because of course, that's changed quite a bit. I don't know if it would be present at all. Like we just, 
as we're talking, Jasmine, we've just finished up a series called New Reads November. So we've just read um, five more recent YA books, which is fun and different and kind of gives us a chance to like reflect on how the industry has changed relative to these throwback books that we spend most of our time talking about on the podcast. And it feels to me as though maybe in like the earlier aughts, it's like authors and creators in general maybe took a little bit of a break from talking about weight and shining a spotlight on how weight might factor into somebody's sense of self and self-image. And what's really refreshing about newer YA is that authors seem to be casting teenagers who are in bigger bodies in lead roles again and celebrating it or if not celebrating it at least not making it a thing like making it neutral it's neutral like this is just a person we're going to do a brief description of the way they look maybe we'll talk a little bit about how their body feels in a pair of jeans and it's not a big deal this is just who they are so I feel like maybe the cat ate my gym suit was part of this pre late 90s early aughts pause on talking about bodies where it was much more negative in nature. Yeah, I mean, Marcy is so hard on herself. And like, I mean, it is a constant refrain, right? She's constantly calling herself a blimp, talking about how terrible she looks, talking about how no one will ever like her because of this or that. But also, I mean, you see it it comes from her mom, like, you know, in conversations with her father, both of her parents, because her father is constantly insulting her looks, her mother, is not insulting, well, I mean, it's not as insulting as her father, but her mother is always worried about her looks too. And then there's lots of conversation about what they're eating, like, cause her mother does like tell her that she should be thinner, but then also gives her ice cream. And so, yeah, there's just, the, the good thing, cause I, cause I, you know, knew that this was gonna be an issue going into the book and the weirdly, it was less bad than I thought it was going to be. Oh, interesting. <laughs> I think partly because I kind of expected like a, whole weight loss narrative that it didn't really turn into. I mean, it was, there was kind of reference towards the end about Marcy didn't think she was a blimp anymore, but a helium balloon or something and how her mother didn't give her ice cream as much. And she started being a little kinder to herself, you know, so that was good, but it was like, really that, that part really did like it, it, that is very different from, I think how young adult books would be today in 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 a good way i'm glad that well i'm glad that young adult books today would be a lot better about that um but yeah that part was very difficult to your point about marcy's mom i think one of the things that was most startling or most jarring to me was that marcy and her mom have a very complicated relationship at the beginning of the book most of which i think we can attribute to marcy's father and his just terrible treatment of his whole family and the way that marcy's mom protects him and that of course puts marcy in a really difficult position and she's often very angry with her mom and by the end of the book they do come to an understanding and a lot of it is as a result of this like journey that they go on with like a school board battle which is pretty cool and her mom ends up discovering a bit of like a feminist streak in herself and realizes that she needs to go out and like make some decisions separate from the things that her husband does or doesn't want her to do and so that feels like such a victory as a reader right you're like oh good like they're getting along this is so nice But her mom is still making comments about her body. Like there's, I forget exactly what it was, but I think she said something about how, oh, like Marcy, you look pretty. Like I like how you look in this outfit. But then there's the backhanded twist of, but you could still lose a few more pounds. Yeah, right. You know, you know, you would look so much prettier if like, or, or something like that outfit really emphasizes your face. Yes, 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 yes. (laughs) 
And to your point about the ice cream at the end, like the final chapter of this book is very much like a, let's wrap this story up in a bow and show how this family is in a much better place now than it was at the beginning of the book, which is very like 1974 middle grade in my experience. Like, let's just show it's like an epilogue, like the happily ever after. But it's really messed up that part of the happily ever after is not only that she no longer feels like a blimp, but it's like, oh, mom doesn't give me ice cream every night anymore. Like that's that's progress that we've made after all of the ups and downs that we've been through throughout the story. Yeah, I mean, yes, it was. I mean, and I do think that part of the terrible relationship with Mercy and her parents and both her dad and her mom was kind of her mom would reward her with ice cream when there was a struggle with her dad. And so I think that was kind of meant to say, we're all dealing with things better now, but also it's just all tied up in a terrible relationship with like one another and bodies. And, and I think the author, I think for this didn't mean it in that way, but it does show how awful all of their relationships were with the exception of Marcy and her brother, who I think had a good relationship, but like how terrible the relationships between all three of them were. As you were talking, it occurs to me that there's a place in this discussion for that phrase that we use a lot in 2022, which is taking up space and how much space can we, should we take up? Are we taking up? And I think at the beginning of this book, Marcy is physically taking up a lot of space and she's not comfortable with that, right? Like it makes her feel uneasy in her body. There are a couple of specific references to the fact that she doesn't like to be up and moving around in the classroom. Like she would prefer to sit down and hide her body. The title, The Cat Ate My Gym Suit, is straight from this body insecurity that she has going on because she doesn't like to change for gym, which I so remember that feeling of not wanting to change for gym. And so she comes up with all of these ludicrous excuses as to why she can't change for gym, one of which is the cat ate my gym suit and I can't change for gym. So she's really uncomfortable with the space that she takes up in her body. And it's like all of the events that happen throughout the novel empower her to like feel comfortable taking up that space. And I just kind of wish we left it there rather than like, now we're going to shrink you. Like, let's eat less ice cream. And of course, we don't get that. We don't get that in so many words. But the messages that she is getting from her mom and even from Nancy, her best friend, toward the end of the book, it's still... Oh my gosh, the conversation. Oh my gosh, Nancy is the worst. Like, still pushing her toward the fact that like, cool, cool. Like, we see that you're comfortable taking up more space now, but it would it would be great if you took up less space also. No, I mean, my eyes got so wide yeah. with the conversation. With Nancy I can confirm. <laughs> because there was so much, like, there was so much good stuff in their relationship, right? Because yeah. she was like, you know, Nancy did you really become friends with me because your mom made you? She was like, well, at first, but now like, I really like you. Yeah. And that, that was so sweet. And then Marcy was like, well, but I think I'm too fat. And, and, she, and Marcy says, well, you are too fat. But I was like, oh my God. Nancy, get out of here. <laughs> Nancy, we're done like, with you. <laughs> I was like, wow, that, wow, okay. So cold, unbelievably oh. cold. I mean, I do love, I always love the notion of like, these are obligation friends because that is such a real thing when you're a kid. Yeah. Like our moms are friends. Like, I guess we have to be friends. And even if I don't really like you, I kind of like you just because you've been around for so long and that all tracked for me. But she was so nasty. That's not, that's not the friend that anybody should have. Well, and I mean, but that's the interesting thing to me is that I don't think it was supposed to be nasty. Like, mm. I think it 
Marcy was supposed to be the supportive friend, right? Because right. she's like, well, yes, you are too fat, but I still really like you anyway. <laughs> you know, yeah. or like the stuff about like the boy, like he likes you despite that. Like it's okay. And so I think that was supposed to be supportive when, wow, it was just really so bad. Yeah, it was horrible. Well, the body stuff is hanging in the background of this entire book, but let's move on to what is going on in the classroom because that I think is what felt so fresh and timeless, at least to me when I was reading this book. So the big news at the start of The Cat Ate My Gym Suit is that the English teacher has left. And so there's a new English teacher that comes in and her name is Ms. Finney. And I emphasize the Ms. because when Ms. Finney writes her name on the chalkboard, Marcy is shocked by the fact that she wrote MS period, not Miss, not Mrs. She is coming in and saying, my name is Ms. Finney, period. And she has this really unique approach to teaching. She's very upfront with the students about what she expects from them and what she wants to share with them and how her approach is not just about reading and writing. She wants to teach them how to express their emotions and to talk about how they feel and how to communicate with each other, which when you really think about like what reading and writing is, that's what it's all about. You know that better than anybody, of course, Jasmine. This is all like brand new information to the students, of course. And Ms. Finney even goes like above and beyond that by encouraging them to start this club, which they call Smedley, which is just like a feelings club. And I don't know if I want to be in a feelings club or if it would be terrible for me to be in a feelings club. I, I just can't decide. <laughs> yeah. I feel like social media is sort of a feelings club for better or for worse. (laughs) What did you think of Ms. Finney? Did she, did she remind you of any teachers that you had or did she sort of reinforce the fact that you didn't have any teachers like this when you were growing up? I mean, she did remind me of some teachers that I've had, like some of my favorite teachers, right? Who kind of made everyone do things in a different way or made you think about made you think about whatever subject they were talking about in a way that was surprising and different and engaging. Like I, you know, I always liked like English and stuff. So I didn't need that from those teachers, but I, but even thinking like, I was not like a, you know, math science person and thinking about some of the science teachers that I had who approached science in a totally different way, who got me excited about it. Like that was what I needed for those subjects. Right. And so she really did make me think about that and how, how engaged, you know, she got all of the students and kind of did different things. And I could see how an administration would hate that, (laughs) how they would want then and today. Right. Cause how they would want, like, I think test scores wasn't wasn't the same issue in the 70s, but how they would want, you know, people learning what the test would take and like, you know, diagramming sentences and all that. And that's not what Miss Finney did, but she got people excited to read, which is was a, a huge thing for many of the students in that class. Yeah, I, I agree with everything that you said. And I think this this concept of like teaching to the test is a thing that we talk about a lot now, of course, in 2022 um, and over the last couple of years. And while nobody comes out and uses that phrase in this book, that really seems like what the administration, what the principal, Mr. Stone, like that's what they're talking about when they are frustrated with Ms. Finney because they're like, well, why can't you just teach what you're supposed to teach and then move on? Like, why are we talking about feelings? And this is also, I think, where the historical context of the book is so important because we have to remind ourselves that this was written in the early 70s. And I did want to share a quote from a review of the book that I found that was written in 2008 by a Jezebel contributor who uh, was revisiting a bunch of old school kidlet through the Jezebel lens. And 
This writer said, maybe what makes the book genuinely honest, genuinely uncloyingly quirky, and genuinely interesting is how it is not only a snapshot of Marcy's own psyche, but of a family and a country in transition during the war in Vietnam and the feminist movement, neither of which is explicitly mentioned, but are the subtext of why Mr. Stone, Mr. Lewis, and all the other old guard thinker teachings are divesting their children of crucial conformity. And that's really, I think, what's going on here. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, all of the stuff around Ms. versus Mrs., near or Miss, you know, and the, the men who refuse to call her Ms. and like, and, you know, about what, like, what she wore and talking about feelings. I think all of that is very political without, she, yes, she made no reference to the feminist movement, but that, that was clearly what they were all talking about. Yeah, she's coming in and bringing this very, like, progressive energy that this town just seems very much unprepared to handle. We don't know exactly where the book is set, but you get the sense that it's in, like, some small town that's just, like, not really ready for new ideas quite yet. Yeah, absolutely. So Marcy is kind of learning to express herself. It takes her a minute. Like, those first meetings of Smedley, she doesn't really know how to, like, communicate with the other kids. There's this boy, Joel, that she has a crush on, and she's paired with him at their first meeting, and she gets all flustered, and she's not really sure how to talk to him. But over time, she gets a little bit braver, thanks to Ms. Finney, and as a result, she starts speaking up at home. And that, of course, reminds us of how terrible things are with her parents and with her dad specifically. And this isn't something that I've ever talked about on the podcast before. Um, and I want to be very careful about how I bring it up because it's very personal to me. But I will say that when I was Marcy's age and probably when I read this book, I was dealing with some similar behavior um, to Marcy's dad. And very important to note here that this is not anybody that's currently involved in my life. It's not my dad, somebody else who was unfortunately in my orbit around that time. And I, I wonder if that's part of why I like forgot about this book because it was a little too close to home. But I also feel as though it's like very accurate to my experience, not only the way that Marcy's dad treats the family, but also the dynamic that it creates between Marcy's dad and Marcy's mom, and then how Marcy feels like tension with her mom, because her mom is just trying to like hold it all together. And so it was hard to read in a lot of ways. But I also found it like kind of healing, because I was like, Oh, right, like, this is what happened, because it's not something that I ever think about. And um, yeah, just to watch Marcy try to find her voice in that family and to to watch as her dad like bites back at her every time she tries to stand up a little straighter and and speak a little louder. And then like, I think the most heartbreaking thing for me as an adult and, and again, like revisiting my own experience and realizing that the women in my life then were about the same age that I am now realizing that there's like the pressure to like protect the children in the house. Like it reading about her mom's reactions to all of this, like cut me pretty deep this time around. Yeah, I mean, that was so, that was just so hard to read. I think actually one of the the things that I found so interesting about it was it was so hard to read, but it was so sort of casual in terms of the story, right? It was yeah. just like, I came home for dinner and then my dad was like yelling again. And like, he just like, he says the most vicious things to her and to her mom. And I, I could I could so recognize in sort of women that I've known who have been in abusive relationships how her mom is trying to keep the peace, right? And it's like makes Mercy apologize or like, you know, is trying to kind of make everything calm down in a way that you can like tell it was killing her mom and killing 
Marcy and her brother too. And so, yeah, all of that was, was so hard and how like, cause there, there is one like tiny, not terrible scene with her dad. Right. And then, but every, you know, but like the rest of it is just, he is just like horrible to Marcy and her mom and her poor little brother all the time. Like, making fun of her little brother for his teddy bear like of course her brother is like can't go without his teddy bear because he's in this abusive family and he needs his teddy bear like right can you blame the kid i can't <laughs> no no so but yeah that was that was so hard poor i just felt so bad for poor mercy and her mom and you know and like i was angry at her mom because her mom wasn't protecting marcy in the right way but i also understood it yeah when you talk about the one not quite terrible scene with her dad, uh, are you referring to the one where Marcy tells him that she's going on a date? Yeah, yeah. Okay, I want to talk about that because I pulled a quote from that scene because I thought it was just, I was like, yes, okay, so he's not being as horrible as usual. And yet the misogyny is just oh. wild. Her dad says, I'm not sure that I like the fact that my little girl is growing up, but I suppose that I have to get used to it. And I was like screaming as I read this because I was like, okay, you have been rude to her, abusive to her, this entire book, and I assume her entire life. And the only time that you are getting sentimental about her is because you might, you know, there's this other male figure potentially male coming in and like taking up your territory and taking her away. Like that's sort of what you've been waiting for as a father. It's, it has like a lot of like as a father of daughter vibes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> as a father of daughters, I do. I suddenly like my daughter because she might be going on a date. And I'm like, dude, yeah. 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 <laughs> this is so bad. The other thing that happens as a result of this whole dynamic is that as part of their relationship kind of coming together, Marcy and her mom adopt this. Well, Marcy has this like adultification thing happening where her mom is like, too scared to share what's happening at home with her friends and with any other adults. And so she confides in Marcy. And then when she tries to confide back to her mom and in doing so is, is harsh on her dad, then her mom gets mad. And Marcy's like, I don't know what you expect me to do here. Like, it's not fair for you to have this conversation with me and then to get frustrated when I have those feelings as well. Yeah. And I think Mercy doesn't say it this way. It's basically like, I'm your daughter, not your friend. Yeah. Like you can't, you can't use me as, as therapy, right? <laughs> um, in have, in your terrible marriage, because he's my terrible father. Like, yeah. You, and, and, and then, her, and then her mom gets so upset that like, oh, but I want us to have a good relationship. Well, <laughs> too bad, you know? I mean, and mm -hmm. so, yeah, Mercy's mom. Yeah. I, I had some, I had sympathy with Mercy's mom because she's in this terrible abusive marriage and like doesn't have a job and it's clearly there's like financial abuse too right because she doesn't have her own source of income but also oh she's just doing a number on her daughter she is and the good news is that as marcy has this growth journey her mom does too and they come together in this fight for ms finney's reputation um, that also inspires Marcy's mom to ultimately go back to college and take classes and do some other things, even though uh, her husband doesn't approve. But let's talk a little bit more about what happens with Ms. Finney, because the real fight happens when Ms. Finney is removed from the classroom. And at first, it seems like it's only because uh, the principal, Mr. Stone, and other administrators don't agree with her teaching tactics and just like her unconventional approach to 
education. But we find out that it's also because she refuses to say the Pledge of Allegiance. And this is where I was like, oh, 2022 election day. This is so perfect. I couldn't have planned it better myself. And this reminded me of a book that I have mentioned on the podcast before called Nothing But the Truth by Avi. And I read it for a book report when I was in fifth grade, maybe. And it stuck with me because that's what it was about. This whole book is about a kid who decides that he doesn't want to say the Pledge of Allegiance. And when I read that in fifth grade, this was like a completely new idea for me because I grew up in a place where like you just say it and you don't really even know what it means. And I think that's the messed up part of it. And what this book forces us to examine is like, say it if you want to say it and say it if you buy into what it's saying, but don't say it if you don't really understand it or agree with it. And so ultimately, Ms. Vinny is removed from the classroom because she is not actually saying the words to the pledge out loud. For the record, she is not telling her students not to say it. She is just not saying it. So all of the students come together because they miss Ms. Vinny so much and they want her to come back. And Marcy, of course, really has a lot at stake because she's spoken out to her father quite a bit because of what Ms. Vinny has taught her. And so now to not even have access to her anymore is really heartbreaking. And it gives Marcy a much needed chance to bond with her classmates and to make friends. This boy, Joel, is really like an activist kind of kid. And so he helps rally the troops, Marcy and Joel and Nancy and one other student, they actually get suspended because they are kind of like leading the charge. And in the end, at the school board meeting, Marcy's mom actually like aligns with Ms. Finney, despite the fact that her husband doesn't approve. She comes out in Ms. Finney's favor in an op-ed, like Marcy really gets a chance to see her mom step up for what is in her best interests instead of what Marcy's dad wants or thinks is right. Um, even with lots of talk of conformity, which we get a lot of both from Marcy's dad and from the principal. But in the end, the kids actually go to the hearing. And I I think that when I was a kid reading this, I bet that I thought that like going to a school board meeting was like so mature and grown up, even though like that's a thing I could have done and just never did. But I probably was like, oh, like this is so badass of them. Like they're going to a school board meeting. Like how awesome. <laughs> And what happens at the school board meeting is kind of fascinating. And I did want to share a few of the things that Ms. Finney says when she is representing herself. She says, I don't think it's a crime to dress differently. I never dress immodestly at school, nor do I tell the students how to dress. As for teaching differently, that's very true. I'm not at all ashamed of that. I'm hopefully teaching human beings to communicate with one another and to love and respect the English language. I try to do it in ways that will interest and excite students. Everyone complains that children can't and don't read. Well, my students are reading and their writing has improved. Just check their records. The results are there. Isn't that what's important? And then she goes on to talk about the pledge. As for the Pledge of Allegiance, I choose not to say it. I salute the flag each morning as a symbol of what this country is supposed to be, but I can't say the pledge. I am sorry to have to say that I don't believe this country offers liberty and justice for all. I will continue to work toward that end, but until I see it happening, I will not say the pledge. I am a good American. I care about the country and the people in it. I'm curious, Jasmine, as we as we talk about the timeless quality of this book, what do you think that Ms. Finney's comments have to say about what it's like to live in America even now, 50 years later? Yeah, I mean, I, right, like th that paragraph in Ms. Finney felt very timeless, right? Mm -hmm. Like, and I love the way she said it, that I, I am working towards that. I don't think that it, that's America now. I don't think that's America now either. Sorry, Ms. Finney, so much longer. Yeah. But, but I did find that so interesting and like, so relevant to conversations that we're still having today about school in particular, but also about America. Yeah, I think it it gets down to the question of like, what does it mean to be patriotic? 
and like being patriotic, according to Ms. Finney and according to Ali Hafkasik as well, it's not about just like loving your country because you live in it and because you're supposed to. It's about understanding deeply the ideals that the country is striving toward and trying to make that ideal a reality and not being passive about it just like showing up and just assuming that you know, everything out there in the world is the way that you would like for it to be. Um, so yeah, I, I think it's about patriotism. Yeah. And about working towards your ideals, Yeah, you know, and working towards what you want the country to be. Right. Exactly. And in the end, the school board decides to let her stay. And in the biggest twist yet, Ms. Finney says, thanks, but no thanks. It was important to me to win, but I feel like I have already caused so many problems and been so divisive that I will not be able to teach effectively. And so I have to, I have to say pass. And she does not go back to the classroom. What did you think about that? I thought that was very fascinating because I had forgotten what happened. Yeah. And so I was, I was like, I, I feel like it would be victorious for her to win, but then maybe a little like, you know, but is that all that's going to happen? You know, she goes back to the classroom and then it's happily ever after. And so, so I did think that was very interesting. And I kind of it made me really respect Miss Finney, like, because, because it would have been miserable for her to go back to the classroom because her principal would have been looking for any little thing to get to her. And one thing that I also thought was interesting that it didn't really get talked about at all but like there were there were clearly students who didn't like her right because someone must have told on her that she wasn't saying the pledge right yeah. and then then like students told on the kids who got suspended like somebody told on them that they were the ringleaders right and so so there were there would have been people in her class who didn't like what she was doing the principal would have hated her constantly the other teachers didn't love her either and so that would have been a miserable situation for her so like Good for Miss Finney for getting herself out of to that toxic environment, but also it was like I could the kids were like seeing how upset the kids were and how betrayed they felt by her was also very interesting and, and was a really I thought good kind of conversation about kind of doing what what works best for you and not not kind of caving to what everybody else wants you to do. Yeah, I think that's a powerful lesson on a lot of levels. For readers and for this fictional students in this book as well. Yeah. So on the whole, Jasmine, I know that both of us seem to have forgotten a lot of the details from this book when we read it many years ago for the first time. But on the whole, how did this recent reread compare to any of those vague memories that you have of it? Um, or even just like your more broad memories of like all of the books that you read when you were growing up? I mean, I think like it was such a fast read. I mean, I read it in basically, you know, two days. It, it could have been a day, right? Yeah. But I took a break in between. And so engaging from the beginning, like I was really invested in Marcy and her family and her friends. But also I, because right, you said at the beginning, the Caddy Mae Jumpsuit is a title that is, is does not, it does not at all go with this book. And and that was the stuff that stuck in my mind about it. Like, I remembered the weight stuff. I remembered the, like, cutting gym stuff. And I think because of the title that was there. But I had forgotten so much of the other stuff. And it, it, was, it was a much more interesting book than I thought it was going to be. I agree. I'm glad that you felt that way. And I appreciate you taking the time to read it with me. What else have you been reading lately that you would recommend to our listeners? So I read and really loved... 
um, Alicia Rye's newest romance. It's called Partners in Crime. It is a very fun kind of romp of a romance that, you know, it starts out with like two people who used to date and haven't seen each other for years, like getting kidnapped together in Las Vegas. And then they have to like rescue themselves. It's very, it, like it's it's a total ride it's also one of those books that you have to like carve out time to read because once you start you're just going to want to keep reading it so that was a very fun book alexa martin has a new book out called better than fiction it's a very great romance it's about you know it's sort of a grumpy sunshine kind of romance but the the main character who is a woman she owns a bookstore that is uh, that she was left by uh, you know, an old relative and she hates it. She hates books. She's never liked books. She hates owning a bookstore. And then this guy comes in who is a romance author and they end up having a romance. And it's, it's very fun in, you know, cause it talks about like books and writing and also romance and family stuff. And that, that one I, and I, I love Lexus Martin. Um, Martin's books anyway, but it, this is very, you know, different than some of her others, but still has kind of that heart in it that, um, that I really loved. Well, I'm adding both of those to my personal TBR and I will include links to them in the show notes for this episode. You have so many wonderful books out in the world, Jasmine. I'll include links to them as well. I know your newest, Drunk on Love, published earlier this fall, actually on my birthday. Happy birthday to oh, me. Um, can you share anything about the book and anything else that you have coming up that you're working on? Yeah, so um, Drunk on Love is my eighth book. Um, it is about Margot and Luke. Margot uh, owns a small family winery with her brother in Napa Valley. She uh, is away on a business trip comes home and one night she that right when she comes home she's having dinner at her best friend's bar um in napa she's sitting next to a cute guy um luke they chat they end up having a great conversation they go back to his place they have a great one night standard so margo thinks until she shows up to work the next morning and discovers that her newest employee at her winery that her brother hired when she was out of town is luke and so they have to deal with all of the repercussions of you know having this one night stand when she is now his boss and the attraction that they have to one another and so that is from then on you you have to read the book to see what happens you gotta read the book well everybody get a copy congratulations on all the success of your work jasmine this was so special to get to chat with you um and about such a fascinating read too yeah absolutely thank you so much for having me on thanks bye SSR is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts. Thanks so much for listening to the SSR Podcast. Check out our website at www.ssrpodcast.com for show notes and other information. And be sure to connect with us on social media for updates on upcoming episodes, behind the scenes inside scoop, and some good old fashioned book talk. Find us at SSR Pod on Instagram and Twitter and search SSR Podcast on Facebook to join the group. To reach out directly, you can send me an email at hellossrpod at gmail.com. If you're loving the show, it would mean so much if you could subscribe, leave a five-star review, and share your thoughts with a comment. And don't forget to tell your friends, too. In the meantime, happy reading. I'll see you next time on the SSR Podcast. <laughs>